Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And welcome back to our conversation about librarians. Yes, pour yourself a library beverage, which... You won't get that joke if you missed our first episode, but in case you're wondering, it is lime, blackberry, and gin, and maybe a little bit of fizzy water. Totally fizzy water Mm -hmm. over ice. It's our new summer cocktail. That's right. So in our last episode, we talked about the original librarians and the original librarian stereotype, which was a white, fusty, curmudgeonly fellow. Right. Picture Giles from Buffy, but not as cool. Yeah, totally not as cool. Um, if Melville Dewey had been Buffy's watcher, Ugh. ooh, it would have gotten real creepy oh, real fast. That would have been the worst. I'm putting that image out of my brain immediately. He would have been like literally like watching her all the Ugh. time outside the, her window. I'm just like hugging her like, no, I'm friendly. I'm friendly. This isn't creepy. Buffy, that was such a rough fight. Let me... Just don't tell anyone you. I did this. So, in case you're completely lost right now... <laughs> Don't worry. It's all explained in the previous episode. Yeah. Because Melville Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System is a big reason why librarianship became so quickly feminized Mm -hmm. and remains feminized. Like we said in our last episode today, more than 80 percent of all librarians are women. It's mostly white women. Um Women of color comprise less than 16% of all librarians, and we're going to get into diversity later on in the podcast. But in this episode, we want to focus on what was happening with the women as Dewey and his cohorts were standardizing this profession in quotes. And I say in quotes because There was this whole debate and kind of remains a debate Mm -hmm. as to whether or not librarianship is a profession. Yeah, like a a profession like a lawyer versus a service oriented job. Exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of this information is coming from this fabulous paper we read called The Tinder Technicians, not Tinder, but Tender. Uh, the Tinder Technicians, the feminization of public librarianship. It's basically sminty. In a paper. Yeah. It's so fascinating and uh, full of really incredible detail about gender dynamics and anxieties about gender in librarianship. Yeah, there's so many intersections of uh, gender, class, race, sexuality going mm-hmm. on in the development of librarianship. And now I will think of that every time. A, I smell that book smell. Love it. Which is one of my favorite smells. I wish that instead of the new car smell, I could get a car that just smells like a library. Gets that that old yeah. that old book smell, and and you just had a book in your car at all times that you could rest your face on. Am I the only one who likes to snuggle a book? It's pages. Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, what I was going to say is that we we move after after the Civil War, we move from the stereotypical librarian being a curmudgeonly upper class white guy to it being a spinster woman. And so what was going on? Basically, libraries were opening very quickly. 
as we discussed in our last episode, uh, they needed workers and they needed them cheaply. And as happens with so many fields and industries in the world, <laughs> in this country, um, they looked at women as a bargain. Yeah, women were absolutely a bargain because there were very few job opportunities for women at the time. And at the time we're talking about uh, is the the late... 1870s into the turn of the century. So this is the period when the guys at the top, Dewey et al., are really trying to professionalize things. But um, parallel to the development of the public school system, they can't get teachers or librarians fast enough. Because of industrialization and urbanization, men are being attracted to different kinds of jobs and entrepreneurialism. So who's a bargain? Women are a bargain. Mm-hmm. And by 1878, two-thirds of library workers, in terms of the clerks and assistants, were women. And it's no surprise because libraries tended to have pretty small budgets. They had to be thrifty with what they had from taxes and endowments. And in an 1876 mm-hmm. article titled How to Make Town Libraries Successful, one of the tips was, quote, women should be employed as librarians and assistants as far as possible, essentially as far up the ranks as possible. Yeah, I. Th- it's crazy to me to read about women as l- objects. I mean, I know I'm saying that as a co-host of Sminty, and so I should be used to that. But, like, literally, women aren't discussed as, oh, they're a great investment because they're hard workers or they're so smart or, like, they go to a fabulous all-women library school. It's it's literally, like, get those women-bodied people in here because they are so cheap. Yeah, and you'll get a lot of bang for your buck, whereas if you hire a man cheaply, and this is according to this 1876 article. This is me just not just going off the mouth. <laughs> if you hire a man at the same rate, you're not going to get as much work out of him because these are, as the title of the paper says, they're the tender mm. technicians. Again, not to be confused with the Tinder <laughs> technicians because that's another podcast. Um, and this kind of work, like being a secretary, like being a teacher, but even more so, was considered respectable and very women appropriate Mm -hmm. because books equaled culture. And thus it was within women's separate sphere during this Victorian era. Right, because as we discussed in our last episode, we had moved away from the masculine ideal being the elite, genteel, non-working man, the man who sat around with his bubble pipe at home. Uh, now we have the ideal masculinity being the self-made, hardworking man. And so you have a job where, yes, you have to leave the house, but it's now so much better suited to uh, complementing what masculinity was perceived to be at the time. So you have women being the overseers of culture, working in quiet libraries, and it was perceived to be this great 
position even more so than teaching because you didn't have to breathe that bad air of those stifled classrooms. And again, not my words, words of the time. Um, you didn't have to be around dirty children all day and you didn't have to put in all of that hard mental and physical work. Well, and as we talk about in our episode from a while back on the feminization of teaching, like ye olde public schools were kind of intense sometimes, like because you would have these untrained women teachers coming in with students of all ages, sometimes Mm -hmm. who were larger and taller than them. And it could be physically uh, exacting to manage a classroom. Oh, yeah. Because you have, of course, like all different grades smushed together, but not so in a library. And the way that libraries were even advertised was as uh, domestic spaces Mm -hmm. because these were public-facing roles where people would come in and you would be, you know, obviously like guiding them to the kinds of books and and learning. There was the benevolent uh, feminine mission of libraries. Um, So on the one hand, it's good that libraries were so welcoming to women Mm -hmm. because it gave them job opportunities. But on the other hand, because it's so neatly fit into that Victorian womanhood ideal that it really handicapped them from asserting equal status with men since they were essentially conforming in this role. Yeah, and it's no surprise that the first children's libraries and reading rooms that this country saw were overseen by women. And, you know, we read stories, too, about women in the progressive era who ran reading rooms in, like, tenement housing and settlement housing, who really dedicated themselves to the moral and social uplift of uh, either the lower classes or immigrants or both um, through reading. There was one woman in... I wish I could remember her story, but there was one woman in Boston who established the Saturday, what was it called? The Saturday Evening Girls Club? Yes. And I mean, it was, it was as cool as it sounds. I'm going to say that it sounded cool to me. And it literally brought, um, poorer young women together, uh, of all different backgrounds, uh, Jewish girls, Italian girls, you know, who might, Irish girls who might not meet at church. Or at school, because they are so separated by neighborhood, they were able to come together in these library clubs that started popping up in Boston. And they were, I mean, they took dance lessons. They obviously focused a lot on reading and literature and literacy. Um, and it gave so many girls an opportunity to be out of the house learning rather than holding down a job at 14. Well, and that's the catch-22 of this whole thing, because... Yes, you have like the the restriction of all of the gender norms that were kind of heaped upon this particular occupation, but like the importance of their work, mm-hmm. like can't be emphasized enough. Well, and it's also the fact that you know we don't have to tell you this, fair listeners, but masculine is the norm in our society. And so even with the important roles that these librarians were playing, because they were pursuing a quote-unquote more feminine way of doing things, it was easier to dismiss. Yeah, I mean, and they didn't really have 
any power within the profession either, which leads us to how some women were totally aware that the system was rigged. Um, in 1891, we have Caroline Hewins raising the quote-unquote woman question at a meeting of the American Library Association, which means that she was essentially getting up to a room mostly filled with men saying, okay, um, I'm a little concerned because women make between $300 and $900 per year. That's not a lot, in case you were wondering. And she said, librarians, um, you know, we we aren't considered like that valuable, yet we write for six to seven hours a day. We have to know multiple language and, quote, understand the relation of all arts and sciences to each other and must have a minute acquaintance with geography, history, art and literature. And she said in order to avoid just exhaustion and breakdown, Hewins says, I mean, we we just have to make sure we sleep and we eat well. And I also recommend a two to three mile walk every day, which, hey, listeners, Kristen, if you can figure out how to do all of this stuff in a day, let me know, because I I don't I don't see how you can have all of these things. Yeah, we do a lot. This is more (laughs) than that. And one thing that came to mind when I was reading Hewins's account of having to understand the interrelatedness of all those different subject matters, knowing all these languages is uh, the comedy from the 1950s called Desk Set, which is on Netflix, listeners, and it's fantastic if you haven't seen it. It stars Katherine Hepburn, and she is the head of this team of reference librarians, and they were essentially human Googles because computers did not exist. And these women are brilliant because essentially their job is to answer telephones of, you know, people in the building needing to know answers to their questions and mm-hmm. like really esoteric kind of stuff. And these women would just rattle it off immediately because they knew all of these subject matters. They're yeah. brilliant. So going back to 1891, I mean, Hewins and her cohorts were in a way like human computers. Yeah. And so, you know, it sounds like with Hewins's argument saying we're not paid enough and yet we do all of this stuff, which is clearly being I have to be brilliant. I have to work really hard. I have to be on all the time. I'm I'm doing all of this work. That sounds like an argument for a professional field. It does not sound like an argument for a service oriented occupation. And I'm not in any way disparaging service industry work. But what I'm saying is that librarianship is strange and that it exists in that sort of weird twilight area, that gray area between professionalism and well, in in perception, at least, and in pay between professionalism and service industry. And it's understandable that if those overworked and underpaid women at that time wanted to climb the very limited ranks they would remain unmarried. Mm-hmm. It was really only the spinsters who could succeed. So by 1900 to 1905, the prudish, withdrawn lady librarian stereotype was firmly entrenched. It took no time at all. Well, yeah. And I mean, keep in mind this this Ouroboros that's happening right here because women socially and a lot of times, according to the rules of the company, 
granted we're talking about libraries, but uh, once you got married, you typically couldn't hold a job anymore. You were expected to return to your home and cook for your husband and, and whatever, whatever. Be a housewife. Exactly like it was with teaching. It, exactly. And so the women who remained in the profession and wanted to stay dedicated, wanted to rise through the ranks, didn't want to leave having a job that they loved, presumably. Well, of course, they were then considered spinsters because they weren't married. And so it's just like a cycle of like, well, wait, but society is creating this trap and then you're punishing women for it. You're punishing women for being the undesirable crotchety spinsters when in reality, if they had wanted to keep their job, they can't get married. Yeah. And and hence we fast forward to It's a Wonderful Life. And if George Bailey hadn't married Mary, she would have become that spinster librarian. That's that was her punishment. I remember watching that as a kid and being like, but I like librarians. Huh. She's so scary. Why is she so scary? Uh, I'm going to admit something. What? It's the the tables are turning, Conger. You've never seen It's a Wonderful Life? I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, listeners, in case you're (laughs) relatively new to the podcast, my pop cultural knowledge spans from about like 1940 to 1960. I almost just inhaled my water. Um. You've still got a lot on me. Yeah, well, put it that way. Yeah, my '90s witch comedies or dramas, whatever. The the. Although I'm finally watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I feel like I'm I'm really reclaiming my youth, (laughs) my lost youth. Good. So by the 1930s, librarianship was 90% female and second only to public school teaching as the most feminized job. In America. Yes, yeah, so basically women could be teachers, librarians, or nurses. Or secretaries. Or secretaries. Yeah, Until they got married, in which case, sometimes by law, they had to quit their jobs. Yeah. So, womaning is great. Yeah, but, well, n- next up, we're going to talk about some amazing women who yeah. are like, okay, I see you, cultural confines, <laughs> and I will raise you my brain. My library card. So, in our last episode, which we're not going to rehash Every reason why Dewey is super creepy, Melville Dewey, the father of modern librarianship. But despite the fact that he was a creep, uh, he did draw so many women into the profession. He was the one who really sparked the feminization of librarianship. And again, despite his general shadiness, because he trained so many women and he expected such brilliance and hard work and efficiency, robotic efficiency, he did have some pretty brilliant women emerge from his teaching. So we wanted to highlight three of them, starting with Mary Salome Cutler, who became a head cataloger at the Columbia Library in 1889. And that's a pretty big deal considering how Columbia University was all men at the time. Now, 1889 was also the year that Dewey resigned from Columbia University because they were like, Dewey, uh, we don't want all these women around. So Cutler had to leave her job and she followed Dewey, actually, to his newly established New York State Library School. And I want to say that she was actually in his very first class Um 
1893, she chaired the American Library Association's committee to build the model library for the World's Columbian Exposition. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, perhaps. <sighs> To modern ears, but it was quite a big deal. It was a big deal. The the uh, exposition was where you showed off new advancements and innovations and, and peered into what might be in the future. Shelves of books. <laughs> Look at it. <laughs> but it was a pretty controversial move because Dewey was like, dudes, uh, I want Cutler to head this committee. Uh, and they were like, duh, Dewey. <laughs> but we hate girls. Look at the sign. It says no girls allowed. And Dewey was like, I only like girls. I'm leaving this treehouse. <laughs> and then the second woman we wanted to highlight is Mary Wright Plummer. She helped establish the Pratt Institute's free library and pioneered library children's rooms, among, of course, a lot of other amazing stuff. And became the American Library Association president in 1915. And even though she was one of Dewey's earliest students, Plummer, as we talked about in the previous episode, when she became ALA president, she was like, okay, well, now that I'm in a position of power, guess what, Dewey? I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to meet with you. Yeah, no, because Get out of here. Yeah, you guys go listen to the other episode if you haven't. Um and then we have to talk about Catherine Sharp, Catherine L Sharp, uh who was such a whiz when Dewey was asked for the best man to start a library program at Chicago's Armor Institute. Dewey said that the best man is a woman, which to me sounds like such a romantic comedy line. It does. Um except that Dewey is super creepy and I would not want to see a character based on him in a rom-com. Um, and Sharp actually became director of the University of Illinois library program and the university's library. And, you know, I, that doesn't sound like, oh, OK, university librarian. Great. But no, like there were caste systems in place almost for librarians and university or academic libraries were seen as such a big deal compared to your smaller local libraries. Well, and University of Illinois apparently still has one of the most renowned library science programs in the U.S. So, oh, Catherine L. Sharp did a good job because she was their their first director and she set up everything being a dual director of an academic program and a library. Yeah, well, she did such a good job that she actually retired in 1907 because, quote, it was crushing the human element out of her life. Yeah. So (laughs) she wrote that in her resignation letter. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So that's burnout. So then I recommend you go listen to our episode with Emily Aries of Bossed Up on burnout. Well, I mean, but that just goes to show what Caroline Hewins was talking about in 1891. Like, we are doing so much. Yeah. And and Catherine L. Sharp surely didn't have time for a two to three mile walk every day. No, who does? (sighs) So there were these women who were so dedicated to the job and really passionate about this work and obviously um, innovative, just as innovative as Dewey was. And all of our librarian history that we've talked about, even in the last episode and up till now, has been exclusively about white folks. Yeah. And even today, the profession is largely white. But... (laughs) You know who else was trailblazing as all of this was going on, even though they were very much shoved to the side, were African-Americans. Yeah, that's right. There is such a rich history around African-American library culture in this country, but it tends to 
uh, like so many things around diversity in this country, just not be discussed as much. Yeah. So Philadelphia is home to both the Reading Room Society, which was the first social library for African-Americans, which was established in 1828, and the Female Literary Society, uh, which was established in 1831, which was the first social library for black women. So Philadelphia got it going on. Right. Um, which just Philadelphia just makes me want to start singing the Fresh Prince song. Me too. I was I about know. to start it. I know. I held back. I did too. I did too, Conger. We're, I feel like we're grown up. I, although I really want to say grown up from our Fresh Prince, uh, <laughs> yeah. Fresh Prince days. Um, but it wasn't until 1904 that in Henderson, Kentucky, we get a one room annex opening at the rear of the 8th Street Colored School to serve as a library. This is the first structure built specifically to offer public library services to African-Americans, whereas the first white, essentially public library, tax supported library had been established all the way back in 1833. Um, and you would have little kind of uh, blacks only library rooms popping up here and there that would have been privately funded or funded through churches. But this was the first one supported by uh, public tax dollars. And the thing is, as lofty as public libraries original goals were in terms of enriching the entire community, mm-hmm. what they really meant at the time was the white community, because libraries were segregated. Yeah. And so what do you do when you're unwelcome in a essentially a public facility that says we don't want you or won't serve you? You start your own uh, organizations. And so you have Molly Lee Houston, who established a library for African-Americans in Raleigh, North Carolina. And this would have been happening around the same time as women's clubs popping up in African-American communities and progressive era ideals of lifting as you climb Mm -hmm. and providing these kinds of services and particularly literacy for this community that was you know, coming out of the grips of slavery. Right. Um, so fast forward to 1928, and we have the West Virginia Supreme Court ruling that Charleston libraries cannot exclude black patrons since as taxpayers, they're equally entitled to library service. But it wasn't until 1954 Supreme Court ruling in Brown versus Board of Education, that across the country, you have separate but equal being outlawed in those public spaces like schools, but also libraries. We never hear about civil rights in libraries, I feel like. Yeah, I know. People just think libraries are nothing but super quiet spaces where nothing ever happens. But, but so much happened. Right. I mean, they became another yet another site of civil rights sit-ins. For integration, like integration in reality, not just the legal dismantling of segregation, actually legitimately integrating libraries. Um, in 1963, for instance, a white mob attacked two black men who were just trying to get library cards in Anniston, Alabama. I read that and just wanted to throw my laptop out the window. Yeah. I mean, because if like that crystallizes so much like the level of deep-seated racist hatred that you would want to attack someone for getting a library card. Mm-hmm. Like, it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, not surprisingly, these were 
sites of protest. But to its credit, the American Library Association was on record as pro-integration. Um, and I, I think it was actually in the 50s that they held their first meeting in the South because initially they had been kind of nervous about racial tensions in the South. Um, but they amended their Library Bill of Rights, which, how cute is that? That's really sweet. Um, but they amended the Library Bill of Rights in the early 60s to codify its stance saying like you cannot exclude people on the basis of race from entering these places of public learning. Yeah. And I mean, not everyone was terrible. You have during the civil rights era, 25 freedom libraries that were established in Mississippi by volunteer civil rights advocating librarians. Talk about some superheroes. Yeah. And anyone listening who knows more about these freedom libraries, please Write to us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com, because this was, uh, we found this information on the American Library Association's website. So to me, that means it's legit. But when I started doing more research, trying to find out more about freedom libraries, because hello, how cool is that? I couldn't find anything else Hmm. because so much of our popular civil rights history is focused on, uh, desegregating schools mm-hmm. and things like that. So if anyone knows anything, I want to know because I just want to be able to give those librarians their druthers. Yeah. And what is so fabulous about this is that when we talk about the history of African-Americans, when we talk about the history of black people in this country, so much is lost. We don't have some of the names, the amount of names that we do from pioneering white people, even pioneering white women, But we are so happy to be able to give you a few names of some badass black librarians who led the way. So in 1923, you have bibliotherapy pioneer Sadie Peterson Delaney, who establishes the library in the Veterans Hospital in Tuskegee, Alabama, for recuperating black soldiers. And I had not heard the term bibliotherapy before, Caroline, but it makes total sense. So... Delaney uh, realized that there are therapeutic benefits to reading, and she specifically sought out African-American-focused reading material at the time, which in 1923 was a bit of a task, um, but she did it because she knew how important having that inspirational literature would be for these soldiers who, I mean, they're coming back home, they're injured but they're coming back to a prejudiced society even after they've fought for their country. Yeah, and another incredible woman carving out a space for African-American readers is Vivian G. Harsh, who in 1932 was Chicago's first black librarian, and she established a world-renowned research collection of African-American history and literature that is still at the Chicago Library. It's still in existence. And according to a biographical source on Vivian Harsh, This library that she established became, quote, a mecca for literary and cultural icons of the period, including Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston and Gwendolyn Brooks, some of whom even contributed manuscripts to the institution. And Vivian G. Harsh is someone who we could go back and do an entire podcast on because she's one of the most important librarians in American history because she made it her mission to 
essentially preserve African-American culture and is considered one of the the reasons why the uh, like Chicago black renaissance happened because there were she essentially like set up this whole repository, this like cultural center saying, look here, here we are. Here is here are all of the things that we've produced. Here's our history, all those things that otherwise would have been marginalized or completely lost and not too far away from Vivian G. Harsh in Detroit. A little bit later, you have Clara Stanton Jones, who became the first woman and African-American to serve as director of Detroit's public library, despite white public protests. They're like, no, how could a, how could a, an African-American woman be serving in this role? But thankfully, she was able to claim her post and later went on to become the first African-American president of the American Library Association. And in 1978, she was appointed by President Jimmy Carter to the National Commission on Libraries and Information Science, where she served until 1982. So in other words, she was uh, a big deal. Yeah, and I love that um, when Ms. Magazine in 2003 was recognizing the contributions of incredible women to this country, they looked to Carla Diane Hayden, who was the second African-American president of the ALA. And she basically her reaction was basically like, who, me? And she told the magazine, when people ask what's unusual about me being the ALA's president, the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm African-American. But really, what's more significant is that I'm a woman, because even though it's a female dominated field, most library directors are men. And thus, these two episodes have come full circle. Yeah. And the hierarchy is still in place. So we have all of these amazing female librarians throughout the 20th century who, I mean, essentially are to thank for our public learning and literacy in a lot of ways. And community building. Absolutely. Um, and they don't get nearly as much recognition as they should, because I feel like the only name that we associate with libraries is Melville Dewey. And um, so I hope that this raises some awareness of just what what amazing women and men librarians are, but like the the women who really built the libraries from the ground up. Yeah. And who who had so few positive expectations put on them. Yeah. And exceeded them to the moon and back. So now we want to hear from you. Do you have beloved librarians in your life? Are you a librarian? We want to know all of your library thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, well, I have a letter here from Joshua in response to our queer fashion episodes. Uh, Joshua says, Greetings from Sitting Bull College on the Standing Rock Lakota Indian Reservation in Fort Yates, North Dakota. I'm from another Plains tribe, but I'm here for an intensive summer program that trains teachers in how to teach the Lakota and Dakota languages. First off, is everyone in Atlanta as cool as you two? I've been listening to the podcast for years, and I appreciate the sensitivity with which you address a variety of topics. I usually can't bring myself to listen to white, straight people discuss any of the minority groups I'm part of because they almost invariably wind up saying horribly offensive things, even when they mean well. 
but I'm always seriously impressed with what a great job y'all do. Thanks so much for keeping me company on my recent 25 hours of driving from California to North Dakota. One of your episodes prompted me to write in. The queer fashion episode. Thanks so much for covering this topic. I have always wondered why men's Western clothing was so much more boring than what Western women wear, and I found it fascinating to learn that it was the result of a deliberate social movement to tone things down. But also, I feel like it's worth noting that this boring menswear phenomenon is not universal. In Native American cultures, I see men wearing regalia, ceremonial clothing, and everyday wear that is just as colorful as what women wear. I'm a powwow dancer, and I also sew powwow regalia. There is definitely a pretty strict gender binary in force, and I seriously cringe when outsiders portray Native American cultures as some magic gender-free utopia. But you'll see a lot of things that would be stylistically off-limits for Western men. Long hair, dangly earrings, sequins, shiny fabrics, and bright colors as standard styles and attire in the powwow arena. These styles are sometimes misinterpreted by outsiders, but it's not uncommon for straight, macho powwow guys to wear pink regalia with sequins, for example, and think nothing of it. Maybe something about different gender standards and different cultures and what happens when they clash and come together would be a good future topic? Two of the younger boys in my powwow family have attached pink scarves on the belts of their powwow regalia to support a loved one who is a breast cancer survivor, which I find very sweet. The bright colors coming together in the individual and collective dancers' regalia are an integral part of the powwow, so I'm glad we have defied this mainstream trend. So thank you so much, Joshua, for writing in. Well, I've got a letter here from Nicole about our episode on women in political campaigning, and she writes, I love your podcast about women in politics. It really summed up a lot of my feelings about where women have been placed in campaigns and my struggles with that. I started out wanting to be a media consultant or campaign manager in politics, but while interning for a media consulting firm, I was steered toward fundraising by my all-male bosses. In the city I worked in, all of the fundraisers were women, and my bosses told me that to be a fundraiser, you must be well-dressed, and then they ranked the fundraisers on their level of bitchiness. This is one of the hundreds of stories I could share about sexism in the campaign office. Since then, I interned on a presidential political finance team and now work full-time at a political fundraising firm where I work for the governor of my state. What, what, Nicole? Impressive. As you mentioned, in politics, it's important to have a mentor to advocate for you. This is really the only way to get the best jobs. Most campaigns never post a job ad, but instead ask their friends if they have anyone to recommend. Also, people normally choose to mentor someone that they think is like them, So it's a lot harder for women to be recommended for the best jobs in other fields because they're so concentrated in finance. Other factors that lead to women being fundraisers is that they're the most abundant job since candidates always need more money. If a person doesn't know the right people or have a mentor to get their resumes passed around, then fundraising jobs are normally the only ones posted on political jobs boards. In regard to why people assume women are better suited for fundraising, something I've noticed is that donors are nicer to women. We often spend a lot of time calling people for money and people get irritated when they receive those calls. When you call very cheerfully and sound as sweetly as possible, donors normally won't yell at you. My bosses, two badass women, always tell me to be as peppy as possible when dealing with difficult clients. I have male coworkers and they get yelled at more often than the women in my office. I could go on and on about women in campaigns and specifically fundraising. I hope my email makes sense. As you mentioned, everyone in campaigns work crazy hours, and I'm very sleep-deprived. 
Thanks for validating all of my feelings about my industry and for your other episodes that get me through hours of staring at Excel sheets. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for your insight and more power to you in in that field because I can only imagine that it is a toughie. So listeners, now I want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn so much more about librarians, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 